Hello from Paris, city of romance, strikes, garbage piling up on the streets, and very angry mass protests. Um, if you're visiting our city at the moment, I can only apologise for the, the filth and the occasional torched car. Um, but I also think it's quite a good time to visit and see, you know, a different side of life here. This is also France, Dominic. It's not just croissants and beautiful people. How long has the garbage strike been going on? More than two weeks now. Oh, goodness. Yeah, it's kind of neighbourhood to neighbourhood. And here, anyway, in this bit of town in the northeast, the rubbish on the streets does seem to be subsiding a little bit. But it's been pretty bad. Uh, apparently, a few days ago, there was estimated to be 10,000 tonnes of uncollected trash on the streets. Wow. The rats have been having a field day. <laughs> I saw this nice meme yesterday that made me laugh. It was a rat being interviewed by a TV reporter. And it was saying, yeah, we were just thinking of spending a couple of days in Paris, but with this all-you-can-eat buffet deal, we've decided to extend our holiday. <laughs> but yeah, it's not just been garbage, has it? There's also been some quite uh, heavy protests, right? Yeah, it's been pretty hairy at points. Some of the protests have been more in the kind of festive tradition of French protests, but some of them have been really, really angry. So it's a febrile time over here. But I hear you've also been having a febrile time over there in Italy. Yeah, I arrived in Italy and immediately discovered I had COVID. Uh, so was stuck in an admittedly very nice Airbnb in Bolzano, fortunately with a balcony so I could sunbathe in the sun and look at the mountains and slowly get better. But have you been able to sing? Because you're over there for work, no? Yeah, it's not great for the singing. So yeah, I've missed a week of rehearsal, but I'm getting back to it now and all will be well. Glad to hear it. Um, COVID and rats aside, what are we talking about this week? Well, a few weeks ago, our producer Katz Laszlo stumbled across a video on YouTube with about 3.5 million views. And it was about a rewilding project in Slovakia, which I thought was pretty incredible that a rewilding video gets 3.5 million views on YouTube. I was pleased by that. Um, and the video was introducing a project to flood a forest just off the banks of the Danube River. Here at the Europeans, we were all fascinated by the sound of this project and wanted to know more. So we are inviting one of the people involved this week onto the show, Duarte de Zuta from Mossy Earth, to come and join us and tell us a bit more about why and how they flooded this forest in Slovakia. But first... Who has had a bad week, Dominic? It's been a bad week for same-sex parents in Milan after Italy's right-wing government, led by Giorgio Meloni, sent a letter to the mayor of Milan forcing him to stop registering same-sex parents of children. Why do this? Like, has the law changed or something? No. In fact, the mayor, who's a progressive politician called Giuseppe Sala, has been registering these parents despite the fact that there isn't a national law acknowledging same-sex parents. Mm. It's a bit complicated, but you might remember that Italy legalised civil unions for same-sex couples back in 2016. This was important progress in Italy, but thanks to pressure from conservative groups and the Catholic Church, the law stopped short of giving same-sex couples parental rights, adoption rights, and also surrogacy is still illegal in Italy. 
But in spite of that, I'm assuming same-sex couples do find some way of being parents, right? Yeah, absolutely. Just because there's no legal framework for it, it doesn't mean that there aren't families with same-sex parents. There are still options for LGBTQ plus people living in Italy to become parents. They can travel abroad and adopt or find surrogate mothers abroad. Or in some situations, people can just make an agreement with a friend and borrow some sperm, buy a syringe. It's perfectly possible to get pregnant without a heterosexual man and a heterosexual woman doing the business. Is the term officially borrowing sperm? Is that what the deal is? <laughs> borrowing sperm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. Um, but because there was no national law for same-sex parents in Italy, those same-sex parents that both wanted to be acknowledged as legal parents had to go through the courts to try and get their kids acknowledged as part of their family. And the mayor of Milan decided that he would just start registering them, which made Milan this kind of temporary safe haven within Italy for same-sex parents. Hmm. But that now has to stop because the interior minister sent Salah a letter saying he must desist registering same-sex couples and let the courts decide. What does that mean in practice for same-sex couples with kids in the city? Yeah, well, that's the most important question. And it's the thing that upsets me the most about this news. Because what it means in practice for these families is so clearly not in the interests of the children. If one of the parents is not legally recognized, then it can create a huge array of potential bureaucratic problems, with the most terrifying of them being what happens if the parent who is not the legally recognized parent dies. The surviving parent could theoretically lose custody of their child after the death of their partner. Mm. How would that be in the interest of the child? That's obviously an extreme example, but there are, of course, tons of other problems, like if a child gets sick and has to be in hospital, then the non-legal parent could be refused entry to a hospital to see and care for their child. It also has implications around child support, around inheritance, and complicates things seriously in situations when parents unfortunately split up. I imagine the LGBTQ community in Milan is like utterly outraged about this. How have they reacted to everything? Yeah, they responded by taking to the streets last weekend in protest against this decision. They were joined by Milan's mayor himself and by the new leader of Italy's opposition, Elise Schlein, who herself is in a relationship with another woman. She said, uh, we are talking about boys and girls already growing up in our communities and going to our schools. It's no longer tolerable and these families are tired of being discriminated against. But the Prime Minister, Giorgia Maloney, has made these so-called traditional family values one of the centre points of her politics. She has spoken out against the LGBT lobby and said, quote, yes to natural families, whatever that means. <sighs> and actually, there was yet another scientific paper published this month that confirms that children of same-sex couples do just as well as the children of heterosexual parents. And actually, they do a bit better, according to this study, in some areas of development on average. Hmm. It was a study published in the journal BMJ Global Health, and it analysed the results of 34 other studies to come to this conclusion. A conclusion that these right-wing politicians in Italy and Hungary and Russia and pretty much everywhere, um, should really consider, instead of opportunistically stirring up this homophobia that seems to just hang around in our societies, even in 2023, and sadly seems to motivate some people to vote for certain politicians. And sorry to get all preachy about it, but I just find it so annoying. Like, rainbow families are not a threat to any of you or to your quote-unquote traditional families. 
As this study yet again shows, kids do absolutely fine with two mothers, with two fathers, or with three or four parents co-parenting even. Although I should point out that the legal status for queer multi-parent families, families with three or more parents co-parenting, is not just a problem in Italy. That problem is pretty much everywhere. Although, as we've discussed before on this show, the Netherlands is meant to be doing something about it, but they're taking their sweet time. Wasn't there also another LGBTQ parenting-related story knocking around in Italy this week? I, f- I feel like there was another headline, though. Yeah, there was. Italy's Senate rejected a proposed EU plan to ensure that if a parent was granted parental rights in one country, they would be recognised as parents in every country in the EU. Mm. So if I was a gay dad in the Netherlands and go with my kid to live or work in Italy, then the EU's idea was I would still be considered a legal parent whilst in Italy, even if Italy doesn't have its own law recognising same-sex parents. But that was rejected, and Matteo Salvini came out on Twitter against the policy with a pretty crude statement. He said, Brussels cannot impose the concept of family on us. A child needs a mother and a father. Children are not bought, not rented, not chosen on the internet. Which I find a pretty horrible and bizarre characterization that doesn't in any way reflect any of the rainbow families that I know that work so hard to build a nice, happy family. So yeah, bad week for same-sex parents in Milan and more broadly in Italy with that Senate decision. So let's hope there's better news for these parents and their kids soon. Let's hope so. Who's had a good week, Katie? Uh, I'm going to say it's been a good-ish week for Kosovo and Serbia because of a deal that has been struck that will hopefully allow them to interact in a more chill, less hostile kind of way. Uh, I say that with lots of caveats, more on which later. Uh, But yeah, basically over the weekend, there were these really long talks involving the leaders of Serbia and Kosovo and loads of people from the EU who've been trying to broker this deal. And when everyone came out, the Serbian president and Kosovo's prime minister said quite different things about what had just happened. Uh, But the EU at least hailed this as a a big win that was going to allow normal people in Serbia and Kosovo to have more security and economic opportunities and generally live more stable lives. Could you give us a bit of a reminder about what the general deal is with Serbia and Kosovo and why these talks were necessary? Yeah. So just to massively oversimplify things for a second, 1990s, Yugoslavia falls apart. At the time, Kosovo was the southern bit of Serbia, but the vast majority of the population living in this area were and are ethnic Albanians, more than 90% of them. And these Kosovo Albanians didn't feel Serbian. They didn't want to be Serbian. And the region was very repressed under the Serbian leader in the 90s, Slobodan Milosevic. There was a very brutal war from 1998 to 99 in Kosovo, fought between ethnic Albanian guerrilla fighters and Serbian forces. And then NATO intervened and Kosovo became a territory under UN protection. And then a decade later, in 2008, Kosovo declares itself to be an independent country. And most countries, in the West at least, recognise Kosovo as an independent country. Serbia, among a few other countries does not recognise this independence. Uh, It continues to regard Kosovo as a part of Serbian territory that has broken away from it unlawfully. So that was back in 2008. And ever since then, things have stayed really, really tense between Serbia and Kosovo. And there have been moments where people have been worried that things could escalate into an actual war again. 
uh, which is where the EU comes in. So for more than a decade now, both the EU and the United States have been trying to broker a deal between the two countries to try and get them to have a more normal neighbourly relationship. So what does this mean in practice? I mean, I read some news reports that talked about normalising relations, but yeah, what does that look like? Some of it is to do with really everyday stuff like ID cards and car number plates. And actually the car number plates are a really good example of something that might seem small, but things came worryingly close to actual fighting over this issue at the end of last year. Uh, There was this huge row back in November because drivers from the ethnic Serb minority living in northern Kosovo, so the bit closest to Serbia, they were driving around in cars with number plates issued to them by Serbian authorities. And the authorities of Kosovo were like, you can't do that. You don't live in Serbia. You live in Kosovo. If you keep driving these cars with these number plates on, we're going to find you. And that made ethnic Serbs really, really mad. Like It might seem like an administrative thing, but it's really symbolic for them and it feels for them like oppression. Eventually, they did come to a compromise over that issue. But that's why car license plates are something that are talked about under this new deal. So both countries have promised to recognize each other's ID documents and car number plates, which hopefully allows people to move between the two countries with a bit more freedom and even study and work between the two without having to think all the time like, ah, Jesus, like, is my degree even recognized on the other side of this border? Uh, The two countries have also agreed to generally respect each other as neighbors Ethnic Serbs in Kosovo are supposed to get more self-government. And, and this is quite important, the deal says that neither of the two countries can act on the international stage as if it represents the other country. Mm. And that part of the agreement is obviously targeting Serbia, which still considers Kosovo to be part of its territory officially. That sounds like almost like... Serbia recognizing Kosovo as a separate country. Uh, If they're going to let Kosovo talk about itself as itself, right? Yeah, almost. Depends who you ask. So Albin Kurti, Kosovo's prime minister, he came out of these talks saying that this essentially does mean Serbia is recognizing or will recognize Kosovo as a separate independent country. Alexander Vucic, the Serbian president, has definitely not said that. Mm. And it would be really, really surprising if he did, because Vucic is a nationalist and his voters feel extremely strongly that Kosovo is a part of Serbia. Like, his base would just destroy him if he came out and said, oh yeah, Kosovo is a separate country, we're we're very happy to treat them as such. Mm -hmm. And that is where the big caveat comes in, because Serbia is actually refusing to sign this deal. The deal exists, but they're not signing it. Okay, then doesn't sound like they've got a deal. Well, what we have been handed is a classic piece of European fudge. Delicious. Uh, what has happened is the deal has been announced, but it's not being signed as its own thing. Mm-hmm. It's been kind of folded into, stay with me here, it's being folded into the EU candidacy processes for both Serbia and Kosovo. And that is where a lot of Balkans people on Twitter are like, huh, okay, is this deal even worth the paper it's written on? Like, Kosovo isn't even an EU candidate country yet. Its official status is potential candidate. So it's very, very far from actually joining the EU. Serbia has been an official EU candidate country since 2012. 
But if anything, Serbian society has become more anti-Western and more anti-EU in recent years. So like state media is very, very pro-Russian, although Vucic himself has actually tried to be a little bit more ambiguous and play Russia and the West against each other. But yeah, it doesn't feel like Serbia is going to join the EU anytime remotely soon either. And the fact that this deal isn't really a proper deal that's being signed and that all of these nice words are just going to be instant documents relating to both of these countries' EU membership processes, that leaves them quite a lot of leeway for not really doing much to actually change things. So Kosovo, for example, is now supposed to be working on giving ethnic Serbs in the country more autonomy, but they don't really want to do that. And there's not that much incentive for them to actually do it if they don't think Serbia is going to you know, recognize Kosovo in a more substantive way or otherwise generally play nice. It also doesn't really help that the two leaders really, really hate each other. Uh, just a few months ago, Vucic publicly called Kurti terrorist scum, which isn't the sort of thing that you call someone who you trust and want to work with. I now understand why you uh, put the heavy caveats before good week. Yeah, it is very much a good-ish, maybe, maybe kind of week. I mean, like you could say that given how little these two men trust each other and that one of them called the other one terrorist scum a few months ago, it is a little victory that negotiators managed to actually get things to where they are. I mean, look, lots of people are very sceptical about how much will actually change now. But to leave you on a slightly more positive note, Some experts are looking at this in a hopeful light because the fact that there is a deal, even if it's a flimsy one, is a sign that Russia's grip in this region might just be loosening a little bit. Uh, Russia has traditionally been a key backer of Serbia in this dispute, and it's really not in Putin's interest for Serbia and Kosovo to, you know, both move towards the EU in this calm and peaceful way. So if you were very optimistic, you might see this as a little step towards that happening. So maybe there's a little tiny shred of positivity in here. Just a little one. Tiny positivity. Big thanks to all the people who have joined us on Patreon recently. We're very touched that so many of you value what we do and have decided to part with some of your hard-earned cash to keep us going You don't have to part with too much of your cash to make a difference. You can donate as little as two euros a month. Other currencies also available. And it really honestly makes a huge difference. So please do head to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast if you can support us at all. This week, we would like to thank our new supporters, Katie Stevens, Barbara Maxwell, Jade Penancier, Georgia Blackwell, Eilish Hennessy, Missoula Dream, FRG, Carly and two Patreon supporters who have generously decided to increase their monthly donations to us, Fraser Seifert and Bill Merch. Thank you all so, so much. Thank you. Did you know that the Danube is the most international river in the world, Dominic? It passes through 10 countries. That's amazing. Can you name them? No. <laughs> not even going to try. I'm not falling for that one again. I'll name them for you. Germany, Austria, Slovakia, Hungary, Croatia, Serbia, Bulgaria, Romania, Moldova, and Ukraine. Wow. It was very mean of me to ask you to do that. It is. Especially as you were quite sick during this interview, you can really hear <laughs> Dominic's COVID in it. But I'm very glad that you're on the men now. Yeah, it was a few days ago. Fortunately, I'm a bit better now. Yay. Anyway, why are we talking about the Danube? Well, a little while back, 
back. Our producer, Katz Laszlo, told us about this organization, Mossy Earth, which does some very cool environmental projects. And their funding model is a little bit like this podcast. Their projects are funded by ordinary people who care about this stuff. Uh, they do a lot of reforestation work in places like the Carpathian Mountains and Iceland. And they also try to bring back the wilderness that we humans have destroyed. Uh, they've done everything from creating a kelp forest in Portugal to helping to reintroduce red kites in Spain. Uh, but we heard about their project in the Danube recently from the aforementioned YouTube video. And that was the one that we really wanted to talk about this week, just because we became weirdly fascinated by it. Uh, it's a project that Mossy Earth did in collaboration with Broz, who are a really great team of environmentalists working in Slovakia. Last year, Broz and Mossy Earth spent 40,000 euros deliberately flooding an area on the edge of the Danube, just south of Bratislava. Why would you want to deliberately flood a forest? Uh, I will let our guest explain. Duarte de Zuta is one of the co-founders of Mossy Earth, and we were very happy to speak to him from where he currently is in Denmark. Flooding is something that a lot of us are afraid of. It's thought of as something that we need to avoid. But what you've been doing in Slovakia recently is deliberately flooding an area of forest. What's the rationale behind this? Well, there are these areas that are supposed to flood naturally, and they have been flooding naturally for centuries and creating these really important temporary ecosystems that are important for a wide range of species. So for instance, fish might go into these temporary ecosystems, amphibians might use them for a few months to reproduce. They're really crucial at certain points of the year. So because they were so regular, a lot of species used them. And the reason why we're flooding things and why we're flooding a forest is because a lot of this was disrupted by the construction of a dam. So our particular project at this moment was disrupted by the Gabachikovo Dam. But uh, yeah, it's essentially to restore something that used to exist to improve the resilience of the local biodiversity, essentially. And so this area is right along the Danube River, the second largest river in Europe. Why did you choose this area? What made it so appropriate for flooding? Right past Bratislava, the river splits into sort of a multitude of channels and forms this like inland delta. You know, you might be familiar with like a, a river delta when it reaches the sea, but this is sort of essentially a splitting of the river into, you know, thousands of channels inland. And this has created this sort of like maze of channels that leads to many kinds of flooded ecosystems, whether it be like sidearms where certain species of fish can reproduce only certain times of the year or oxbow lakes where the water is sort of stuck on a dead end has, has their own special characteristics. I mean, there's such a variety of ecosystems that have sort of popped up due to the way the river splits. Essentially, once you added the dam, it disrupted all of it. And the flooded forests were one of the main ones because you require a lot of volume of water. So as such a rare ecosystem type, we felt like it was really good use for the funds that we collect from our members to be used restoring such an important ecosystem. And in practice, how does it work? How do you, how do you flood or reflood a forest? There's several parts to this. The first one is uh, the uh, water management company that controls a certain portion of the Danube here needs to let some water into the old system. So there's a political slash negotiation sites to be done uh, with them to ensure that that water keeps coming every year. That at least they, they flood enough that those ecosystems can keep existing because otherwise they could simply use it for electricity in their, in their dam. That's one part. 
The second part really is looking at the maps and sort of the lay of the land to understand which areas might be flooded when the water arrives and to then be able to direct that water into the appropriate areas or the areas that would be suitable for this. And I think the tricky thing there is that, you know, you're dealing with a lot less volume of water than you had before, right? So the Danube used to flow through the Inland Delta at about 2,000 cubic meters per second. And now the old Danube essentially only has about 300. So in practice, you dig a ditch, you plan it really well based on where the water goes once the floods arrive. And that ditch should be planned to sort of lead the water to certain locations where it's rather flat and where it can flood sort of large portions. And so you've now had a full season of flooding completed. What were the results like? Did everything go as you expected? Yeah, I think the the first year of flooding went really, really well. We, of course, saw all kinds of biodiversity return to the area, particularly, you know, the most obvious and strange one would be there's fish there again in an area that would have been dry now for 20 something years. But this project is actually targeted at the Pannonian rootful. The idea is to essentially help this endangered subspecies to boost their populations. And this habitat, these flooded forests are really important for them as well. And yeah, we saw them return and that's really nice. So it's one of those things where it's like uh, benefiting probably thousands of species targeted at a few, some amphibians uh, such as the European fire-bellied toad and also, of course, this Pannonian rootful. So seeing them return and getting a good uh, opportunity to improve their situation is really nice. Sounds like great news. I love the name of the European fire-bellied toad. Yeah, it's brilliant. And actually, you, you talked about them in your video and you said that there was some disappointment that they didn't thrive as much as you had hoped, which kind of served as a reminder that what is being done here is an intervention which will not always go exactly as expected. How nervous are you when you go into these projects that you're, what you're doing will have exactly the effects that you hope for? Well, I think not nervous at all, but that doesn't mean we're not concerned. So the idea is that we do our homework. So we have a team of biologists within Mossy Earth that, of course, leads our own projects where we do things ourselves fully. But when we work with partners, they're also working on getting the scientific literature to back up these projects and the ideas. So that essentially, once we went into this project, we were confident on past projects that Bros had done. We were confident on the literature and the ideas and the reasoning behind the project. So, yeah, we were not so nervous about the result. But um, what happened, for instance, to the amphibians is they just got a short breeding season. It was still a boon to their population in, in general in the area, right? So the benefit was just less than it could have been. And it was not necessarily due to, um, let's say, a fault in the project's design. It's more that we would need a water management company to let more water into the system. And that's something that's a lot of conservationists are arguing for currently with the Slovak uh, water management companies. And that's something that is uh, far from the project design and, and from my hands, I must say. And so where do things go from here? Like, does this new flooded forest need maintaining in some way or do you just let it do its thing? Generally, we're big fans of rewilding in the sense that you do a small intervention. It unlocks this like big positive change for biodiversity and you let it be. But when you're dealing with something such as a, a landscape deprived of water and all these species whose population has dropped more than 70%, you essentially have an argument for active management, at least while that dam is still there. And this wetland will require a bit of active management. It's not crazy. It's unclogging the channels, right? And here or there, perhaps reshaping a thing or two every half a decade or something. So it, it is 
a long-term project that will require long-term management. It's not a, a one-off, unfortunately. And I think this applies to most of these areas where you're working with scarce water, as opposed to, say, a place where you might reintroduce a species and lets them transform the ecosystem and just be hands-off after that. Mossy Earth has a really interesting funding model. It's funded by memberships, these monthly donations from people who care about protecting environments like the Danube. Are you frustrated that you have to organize these projects with funding from private individuals? Like, shouldn't these projects be getting state funding? There's a lot of uh, funding in Europe from states and from the European Union for rewilding and for biodiversity. In fact, I'd say the European Union is probably the biggest bankroller of these kinds of projects. So most of the partners in different areas that we worked with, they have a life project running at one point or another. You know, I can't slag them off completely and say that they don't do anything. I think maybe local governments and countries could do more to some extent as well. As for, you know, that we feel like bad using this model. No, it's like it's so much fun. I, I really like it. I'm not one to work with a, a lot of companies' money or money from uh, that comes with some kind of political attachment or that we would have to request every three or four years. We feel like this community is aligned with what we're trying to do. It has our backs. They understand what we're trying to do is complex and they really trust us to achieve these results with their money. And uh, yeah, I think that means that we have to be sharp and that's a good thing to put pressure on us and our team. I know it just feels better, you know, I've, I, that wetland's there because thousands of people contributed small amounts like, you know, five quid, six euros to this uh, wetland. And that to me is cooler than the idea of like a billionaire rewilding that one person just decides, oh, this happens here, this happens there and so on. So it just feels right. If I understand correctly, this is your first flooding project, mainly you uh, planting trees or rewilding it by reintroducing species. Are you looking into any more possible flooding projects? Are you pleased with how this has gone? So we're really pleased with how it's gone. It's a one-off intervention that doesn't cost a lot of money and generates a lot of uh, great habitats. We essentially would like to do a lot more of it. We released a new video last week about a new area that we are flooding, and that is essentially a field, also in the same region, but it's more around creating this rare wet sedge meadow ecosystem that also floods only a few months per year. And we also do some work in Iceland. And in Iceland, there's a lot of room for improving the state of wetlands there because essentially very high percentage of wetlands there were drained with these agricultural channels. The work of restoring them is rather simple and it has huge benefits for biodiversity. So certainly we're going to be doing more work there. Oh, and yes, of course, we have a project in Portugal where we work in an old quarry. And in that project, we're sort of selectively helping flood certain areas to try to just boost the general biodiversity in the area. So these might be sort of blocking certain channels to not allow certain invasive species to move into one area, creating areas that will be sort of temporary ponds, creating small islands within all of these areas, and all this sort of diversity of habitats creates a diversity of species. So yeah, we're looking to flood a bunch more things and we'll be looking at a lot of other projects hopefully in the future. I think I found my spirit animal, and it is the European fire-bedded toad. 
I see that. Such a great animal. I also really like its Latin name, Bombina Bombina. Sounds like a <laughs> Euro dance track or something. That's great. We should enter Eurovision as a band called Bombina Bombina. I love it. <laughs> You should absolutely check out Mossy Earth's YouTube channel. They post really excellent videos explaining their projects, including this one and why they're doing them. Generally, these videos are hosted by Duarte himself. We will post the link in the show notes. What have you been enjoying this week while in COVID isolation? Well, um, I was watching some really terrible Netflix series, which I'm not going to talk about. You deserve it. You were sick. Yeah, I know. It's the right thing to do sometimes. Um, But instead, I'm going to do something stupid and maybe embarrassing and narcissistic. But I'm going to recommend something I did myself for isolation inspiration. And uh, if I'm fired immediately, then it's been a great time on this podcast. Thank you, everyone. So boastful. This had better be good. Well, um, it was all... Because I sang on the radio with three of my colleagues, just actually probably the moment where I caught COVID in that studio. I don't usually want to talk about my singing on the podcast, but I was really happy with how this went. And uh, for once, I feel brave enough to invite our listeners to go and check it out. We were singing the cold song or the catch a cold song, as I've named it, because Uh I caught COVID there. Um, And the cold song is a piece that was written by Henry Purcell about 450 years ago, but you might know it from this incredibly famous performance from the 1980s by the German kind of rock opera countertenor Klaus Nomi with a white painted face. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I've been performing this song a lot over the last few years with a group of amazing performers as part of a show that we sporadically toured for four years and which won quite a few awards in the Netherlands and across Europe. The Cold Song was at the center of that performance in lots of different versions that we created together. And the one I want to recommend that we sung on the radio here in the Netherlands this week was a kind of soft, close harmony version of the piece that we actually improvised into existence over many weeks. It's now pretty much set in place, the harmony. We're not improvising still four years later. But it's one of my favorite things to sing with these incredible singers and performers from very different backgrounds. Not everyone is classically trained, and I think you can hear that. But so I thought some of you might enjoy listening to it, and I'll post a link to the video in the show notes. It's very, very lovely. Uh, I don't usually enjoy any music that doesn't have guitars in it, but I (laughs) loved this. So you should all go check it out. Oh, thanks. What have you been enjoying, Katie? 
Uh, well, given that you've been in Italy this week, I thought it was a good time to highlight a show that we've both actually enjoyed in recent months, although I think you've only watched one episode or so. Uh, Searching for Italy with Stanley Tucci. Oh, yeah. A delicious and comforting TV show, which slips down very easily. Uh, Stanley Tucci, the American actor, you might know him from films like The Hunger Games and The Devil Wears Prada. He's actually descended from Calabrians on both his mother and his father's side. And this show is him eating his way around his motherland, region to region, exploring the huge diversity of Italian produce. And uh, apologies if this is very old news to you, because I think the first season came out in 2021. But it is delightful. And I devoured both seasons alarmingly quickly. And you, I think, have a a personal connection to one of these episodes. Yeah, I actually, uh, in January, went and stayed in the lemon orchard that he goes to visit in the uh, episode about the Amalfi Coast. Mm. They have like a few little, tiny little apartments in the middle of the lemon grove. So he was there and I was like, oh, I know that place. Oh, so you didn't go on a pilgrimage because Stanley Tucci had stayed there? No, it was a coincidence. But Uh yeah, I can highly recommend going to eat some lemons on the Amalfi Coast. I've already waxed lyrical, waxed lyrical. That was an accidental pun. You're on fire this week. Yeah, I need to stop. Um, but I also I also enjoyed the show. Although the thing that I'm really intrigued about is, does he actually speak Italian? Because there are a lot of these scenes where he's like speaking to someone who's speaking Italian at him and he's speaking English back or like tiny bits of Italian. I, I'm kind of suspicious. I thought his Italian seemed okay. I think he lived in Italy a little bit when he was a kid. Uh, Italian listeners, let us know how good Stanley's Italian is. I'm sure it's not perfect, but it's better than mine. Let's put it that way. Um, the thing that I really love about this show is just seeing how visibly, visibly proud everyone is of their regional produce. And also the rapturous look on Stanley's face as he takes yet another delicious bite of something. You can almost like live through him and imagine that you too are tasting this incredible stew. Um, I saw this nice tweet the other day that was proposing to launch a petition to keep Stanley Tucci traveling around Europe eating things forever. Hmm. But I don't think it's a good idea. I think he'd die. Anyway, it's a very, very enjoyable show. It is made by CNN. So it's hopefully available via some kind of streaming service wherever you are. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm already a bit cheered up by our interview from the Danube in Slovakia. But this week I heard another uplifting story from a river in Europe. And I thought, well, there's no such thing as too much good news about rivers, especially when there's a ton of bad news about rivers pretty much everywhere. Mm. So this time, the happy making news comes from Albania, where the government have just declared the River Vjosa, one of Europe's last wild rivers, into a national park. It is the first wild river to be declared a national park in Europe, in fact. And this decision will ensure that the unique ecosystems of this incredibly special river are safeguarded. And what is so special about this river is that it's still completely free-flowing. So there are no man-made barriers like dams allowing it to flow freely from the Pindus Mountains in Greece to the Adriatic coast in Albania, something that is so important for the river's biodiversity. The river is home to more than 1,100 animal and plant species, including some endangered animals such as the Egyptian vulture and the critically endangered 
Balkan links. So congratulations to everyone that's been fighting so hard for this for so long, in particular the coalition of NGOs behind the Save the Blue Heart of Europe campaign, but also the clothing company Patagonia, who were also interestingly involved in making this happen. Hmm. Free ad for you, Patagonia. Congratulations. <laughs> we will be back next week with a fresh salad of cheerful and miserable, but always fascinating stories from around the continent. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to see what Dominic and I looked like when we were fresh and young 12 years ago, there's a very cute picture on our Instagram at Europeans Podcast. And we're also on Twitter at Europeans Pod. People were very kindly saying, oh, guys, you haven't changed at all. And then I was looking at myself in the mirror with COVID being like, I've definitely <laughs> changed. <laughs> Who is this corpse I see? Absolutely. <laughs> this week's episode was produced by Katie Lee and Wojciech Alexiak. Thank you both. We will be back next week, as usual, on Thursday. Please tell all your friends about us. All of them. Every single one. I'm feeling demanding this week. See you next week, everyone. Bye, guys. Adimais.